Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, there aren't many serial entrepreneurs in Japan. The reason for that is, well, the same reason why we don't have a lot of angel investors in Japan. Until very recently, the idea of both startup success and startup failure was permanent. If your startup succeeded, you were expected to be running it until either you or the company expired. And if you failed, well, if you failed, you were done. Until very recently, failure was considered a permanent condition. No one was inclined to give you a second chance. But things are changing. And today, I would like to introduce you to Hajime Hirose, a Japanese serial entrepreneur who has built and sold startups and also bankrupted them. We talk about how Japanese attitudes towards startups are changing, but how in Japan, a bad rumor, even a completely unfounded rumor, can kill an otherwise promising startup. We also talk about the importance and the difficulty of going global and the unlikely tale of a Japanese man running a Chinese startup that ended up IPOing in New York. And we also talk about Hajime's own startup story that weaves its way through London, Shanghai, Redmond, Jakarta, and yes, of course, Tokyo. But you know, Hajime tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. Right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So I'm sitting here with Hajime Hirose, the once and future founder of Buzz Elements and a few other startups as well. So thanks for sitting down with me. Well, thank you. You know, I'm really excited because, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of your show and uh, I'm really thrilled to be on this side of the show. Well, listen, now I'm, I'm excited to have you here because there are relatively few serial entrepreneurs in Japan. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. Your first real international business was in China, but, but before we get to that, let's, let, let's, let's back up and talk about sure. how you wound up there. So um, I was born in Tokyo, grown up in Yokohama, and I went to Seattle for university. And uh, I've been living outside of Japan for the last 26 years. And you ended up working for Microsoft. That's right. right. Yeah. Back when MSN was still a thing. That's right. Yeah. So that was back when Microsoft just bought a Hotmail back in 1998. Oh, the good old days. Yeah, that was good. That was really fun. So I was lucky to be the only two Japanese guy on that project. My job was to globalize the project. So I was like setting up the, uh, the you know testing servers and writing tools so that other people around the world can test it out. So, so how did you wind up in, in China? So I worked for Microsoft for 10 years, from 1998 to 2008. Back in 2004, uh, Microsoft decided that we need to go to China in order to secure more talents. My top priority was to hire a talent and also uh, train them. So my boss, right, uh, he was a Caucasian guy. He thought that, uh, you know, I look 
Chinese enough that I <laughs> he thought that I speak spoke Chinese. Really? Not really. Please I, I tell me not really. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, yeah, they they sent me there, right? So uh, during the week, I have my own project. But then on the weekends, I go around the universities uh, around China to interview people and hire people. I get to meet a lot of、uh, smart people, and I bring them in. How many people were they trying to hire? Our plan was to hire two hundred people within two years. Okay,、so、that's I, aggressive. I, I did that. But you eventually left to join a Chinese company. That was back in two thousand seven. That was when iPhone just came out and App Store just came out. And I thought, oh wow, this is it, right? I thought, oh, this is my chance where I can actually do my own startup. So even before that, I've been wanting to do my own startup, but I was a little bit hesitant. So your plan was to to do a startup in China, or to go back to the U.S. and do a startup? I wasn't thinking deep enough. I I just I just knew that I wanted to start up somewhere. So I bought my iPhone and Mac, and、uh, with my friend we went to Silicon Valley to visit VCs. I developed some app、uh, and show it to、uh, to the VC. I think they liked it.、Uh, they liked that idea in general. But then the people find out that I was trying to leave Microsoft, so I got a headhunt offer、uh, from five companies. So these were Chinese companies. Technically, it was Chinese company. It was all run by Chinese American. But I mean, they were companies in China. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And they they said that they will give me a pre IPO stock, which was really attractive for me. And also, I used to manage the、uh, engineering team. But I didn't really manage a whole company.、Uh, with this job, I was able to manage the whole company. Of course, the subsidiary of that big company. But you know, I get to manage the sales team and HR and everything. I thought that that was a good experience that I could get. What, what did the company do? All right, so it was an IT solution company. So system integrator. That's right.、Okay. Yeah. Do you know a company called Infosys? Yeah, yeah, of course. Shriram's a friend. He's been on the show. Oh really?、Yeah. Okay. All right. So Vansinfo was the Infosys of China, and they put you in charge of market entry in Europe, right? Yes. So when I got hired, I was in charge of the software and service group. So my clients were like Nokia, Microsoft. I was able to grow this company、uh, three times, and we went IPO on、uh, New York Stock Exchange. Now they need to expand even further, right? And they sent me, Japanese guy, to、uh, Europe. You know, I, I, I see a pattern here, and it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of a confusing one. <laughs> so you're working for Microsoft, this American company, who、yeah. sends you to China to do、yeah. market entry. <laughs> right, right. And then from China, they send you to do Europe to market entry.、Yeah. So you're you're market entry into these markets you know nothing about. Yeah, I guess I'm a firefighter. Yeah, a fast、something. learner, that's、yeah. for sure. You were telling me before that this company, after their IPO, had some some management challenges. Before we IPO, we need to globalize ourselves. So we brought in a global talent from US, VP of Sales and stuff like that. But they couldn't really adapt into our culture because our core was so I, I don't know how to say single-minded or. This is something that. 
Indian companies have a real problem with, Japanese companies used to have a big problem with. Okay. And it'd be interesting if China's going through the same thing now. So yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about Japan, because here we are. Sure. But Japanese companies, until very recently, were yeah. famous for having all of the top decision makers yeah. be Japanese, yeah. all of the key decisions being made in Japanese, yeah. Yeah. and it being very hard for anyone who is non-Japanese, no matter how qualified, to really be part of the company. Yeah. Is that the same thing that these Chinese companies that's are seeing? Exact, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Even we brought in a very talented salesperson from US, you know, on the C-levels, have a heated discussion. They started talking Chinese and we feel like we don't belong there. And uh, we feel like, you know, we are like, you know, excluded in the, you know, the boys group, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lesson that I learned. If you want to build a truly globalized company, I think you need to build a DNA as a global company from get-go. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard to change later on. These days, we see a lot of Japanese companies doing that. Hiring foreigners from the beginning? Well, hiring foreigners being more inclusive from the beginning. I don't, I don't see many, but maybe, maybe you know more. Well, let, let's, let's look at both of the extremes. Sure, so, sure. I think there's a lot of startups that because there's so much foreign engineering talent available, yeah. <laughs> very early on, they'll say, okay, we're going to be multicultural. Right. You know, we're going to be open to, to all languages and we'll be bilingual internally. Right. And if you do it from day one, yeah. it's much easier to maintain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think we've also seen like, Larger Japanese companies like Uniqlo and Rakuten, who've adopted English-only policies. We've seen companies like, okay, maybe this isn't the best result, but like Olympus, (laughs) uh, Matsuda, who are are bringing in very senior foreign president and board members. Yeah. So I wonder if that's something that the Chinese companies and some of the Indian companies, they might go through that same transition and... It took the Japanese like 20 years or so, I think. Right. Um, well, I think even Rakuten is having a hard time to yeah. really transform themselves. <laughs> Uniqlo too. I mean, yeah. when, when you're that big and say, yeah. okay, we're going to go English only, it's, it's hard. Yeah. But I, I think just making the effort. And Rakuten does have foreigners in very senior positions. Yes, yes. Actually, they are doing pretty good, pretty good in terms of uh, you know, bringing the good talents actually embedding them into the, the core of their decision-making, which is good. But, uh, you know, it takes time. It takes time. So China's a little behind the curve on yeah. that. Because, you know what? Because uh, China is a huge, huge market, right? They don't have to think about going abroad. <laughs> they only need to think about China. That's it, right? So I guess in terms of globalization, they're behind, I would say. But, you know, they don't have to be globalized because China is big enough for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's let's come back to Japan. Sure. After you left this company, you you, you finally started your very own startup. Yeah. Relog, right? Actually, Milog wasn't my company. I joined this company as a COO. You must uh, have joined pretty early then. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was in London at that time, and I was introduced to this young gentleman who was very smart. He was uh, very passionate about building a global startup. And he goes, um, I don't want to build a Japanese startup. I want to build a global startup from get-go. And uh, at the time, I was ready to start my own company. 
but he asked me to you know, help. So I thought, oh, uh, we, we can build a global company together. But what did it do? What was the mission of Relog? They were doing a lot of stuff before I joined. They were doing the like a Twitter kind of services. They were doing the social game. But when I joined, they had a, something called the uh, right. mobile ad network. And this was back in, what, what year is this, 2012, I think. That's a great time to be uh, running a, a mobile ad network. Yeah, yeah. So when I joined, right, so the internet ad budget was about a billion USD, okay? Right, mobile ad budget itself was 11 billion. Okay, so there was a the money there. But then we know that you know, things are moving from feature phone to smartphone. Right? On a smartphone, you cannot really do retargeting. You cannot do really segmented, targeted ads, right? So advertisers, they have money, but they don't know where to spend on. So what we did was that uh, we were able to tell if you are male or female, or what age group, so that we can send the more targeted advertisement to you. That sounds like a great space to be in at a great time. Yeah. What happened? What happened was that uh, we received uh, you know, negative attention. The end user thought that we are invading their privacy. This is here in Japan? Here in Japan, yeah. I think we were the first one to do that. Well, why, why would they think that? I mean, this is an opt-in program, right? Yeah, it was opt-in. It was mentioned clearly, I thought, <laughs> in a TOU. So what part of it seemed like an invasion of privacy? By installing one of our apps, we know which app you are using. So by analyzing you know, which app you've been using, we can pretty much tell about yourself. From that, actually, we could tell if you're male or female with 80% accuracy. Okay, so it was just too accurate. People weren't used to it yet. Uh, no, I think that, I guess the problem was that we didn't explain enough. Okay, so it was legit, right? It was legally okay. Yeah, it was opt-in. It was mentioned in the TOU, but actually we needed to make sure that users really know what they're signing up for because we are the first one, right? So nowadays, like, everybody does this already. But since we're the first one, we got bashed. How did you get bashed? Was it just user complaints? Was there media coverage? It was a media coverage. And uh, people or the article... They, they wrote a wrong article. They said something not accurate. So they made it sound like it was much worse than it was. Yes, right? yeah. They say it was a spyware. They say that we're spying or we're like, you know, making money on the data they, we stole. It just went viral. We couldn't even stop it. And then, did, did, the, did the press just not understand or did they know, just not care and just wanted the clicks and views? Uh, I'll say, yeah, both. Uh, maybe they didn't understand well enough. And maybe, and they wanted more page view, I guess. How do you fight that? How do you fight that? I mean, if you're, if you're doing the right thing, yeah. you, everyone's opted in, you're not violating privacy, and you've got media writing articles saying you are, how do you respond? Yeah. What do you do? But we found that, uh, you know, once you understand the technology, we're not really invading your privacy. But then to the end users. They don't know what's going on, right? They don't know what's going on. I think, but we as a company, I think we are responsible for letting the end user know what's going on. It's not a black and white. No, I know, but I mean, as, as, a, as a company to survive, you have to respond to that. So did you 
send out emails? Did you take out ads? I wanted to, for example, let's say uh, we got feature. Feature, right? <laughs> in quotes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we got feature in, a, in a one of the major pick block. And uh, they use the word spyware. The information was so wrong. And I wanted to point it out. But actually, uh, I was told not to. I was just told to let, let go, let it go by, by investors. Because by fighting back, I think you know, it's going to go even more viral. So did your, were your investors standing by you on this? Or were they also trying to back away? Once we received the negative attention, then uh, they weren't so sure. That's really, that's hard. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, how did you and your co-founder try to, to hold this together? What, what did the employees think? Right. Okay. So that was a very tough time for us. And it just went so viral that we couldn't actually make a comeback. And we decided to fold the company because the, the brand name or the company was so damaged. You know, this is still one of the biggest differences, I think, between doing business in the U.S. and doing business in Japan. Yeah. Even, let's say, Uber. Yeah. Uber, Uber is illegal. Oh, yeah, completely. <laughs> <laughs> They're violating a ton of laws. And they got squished in Japan trying to do that. Yeah. But in the U.S., it's almost like no publicity is bad publicity, right? Yeah. But in Japan, you can be 100% legal, not even gray. And if you get a bad reputation, it can be, be the end of you. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, Japan, Japan is all, all about the harmony, right? Not yeah. disturbing other people. It's still not very big on disruption in general. Yeah, no. But what were the reactions of like the staff or your family and friends? Did you get pressure from them saying, what are you guys doing? Why are you doing this? Right, yes. And actually, the, most of the uh, staff, as soon as that happened, uh, you know, people wanted to leave the company. But the employees knew you weren't doing anything wrong. They were in the middle of it, right? Right, but then, yeah. I, I guess they weren't as committed as I thought they were. Okay. But it's tough though, right? It's tough, right? Oh, because, yeah. because uh, you know, we got featured on, you know, all the, all the medias and you know, nobody wants to associate it with, you know, spyware, right? So how did you wrap it up? Did you just let it go bankrupt? Do you sell the tech? Do you sell the IP? We sell the tech and uh, we give the money back to the investors and we fold the company. What was the next step after that? Right. Okay. So, all right. So that wasn't that wasn't really my startup, right? So, this time I thought, okay, now I need to do it myself. I need to raise my own money and I need to build my own team. So that's what I did. Was it that fast when you were going through all of this? Were you saying the next thing I'm going to do is go start another startup, or were you starting to think, you know, hey, maybe Microsoft doesn't look so bad? <laughs> no, actually, no. Yeah. I thought that I, you know. So before I left Microsoft, my mentor told me, Microsoft is going to be Microsoft even after two years. Startup, you have to do it now or never. That's very true. I need to do it now. And before I get too comfortable with my life, I need to, you know, I go out of my comfort zone and, and do my own thing. Otherwise, I'm going to be too scared to do anything. So the next step was Buzz Element. That's right. Buzz Element. I decided to build my global company from the, from the start. I decided to go outside of Japan to build a team. 
So it was me and my co-founder. He's Japanese, actually. My CTO. First, we went to Singapore. So let me go back a little bit. When I was in high school, my dream was to work and live in China, US, and Europe, which I've done that already. But I haven't explored Southeast Asia. So the, the, the move to Singapore and then eventually Malaysia, yeah. that was more of a, a personal decision and personal preference rather than financing or a market-driven decision? A little bit of both, but mostly my personal, <laughs> okay, because I wanted to live there. I, you know, came up with all the excuse to... Okay, cool. So what was Buzz Element? What was the vision? We found that, you know, Southeast Asia, especially Malaysia, Singapore, is so hot there, right? People go to shopping mall just to get a cool air, right? right. Just to chill out, right? They just go to, they're going to meet up at the shopping mall and then decide where to go. And as you, as you might know, the shopping mall is huge in, uh, in those regions, right? Huge, 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 like 700 shops, 800 shops. So usually people get lost and people cannot find where to go. I thought, okay, no, this, is a, this is a business chance. I can build an app where people can find good deals, people can find the map, indoor map, and people can actually pay with the app. In return, we understand about their people's location, what they're interested in, and what they buy. We can actually pinpoint advertisement to them. So because it was a mobile app, right? It was easy to get the people's whereabouts and uh, people can browse through different coupons and stuff like that. So we know we have the data of you know, what, what people are interested in. But what we needed is the purchasing data. In order for us to get that data, we needed to integrate with the POS. But integrating with the POS is a nightmare. Because yeah. there are so many different variations of it, and there are so many different, you know. It uh, tends to be very old technology. Yeah, and uh, usually a POS company, they're not willing to work with you, right? So what we decided to do is that we came up with this little device that sits between POS and a printer. This little guy acts like a printer. So the POS thinks this is a printer, right? <laughs> so that we intercept the, the print stream. We send it to the cloud, we analyze it, we cool. bring it back. Yeah, so that's what we did. So I thought that was a brilliant idea because by doing that, we know everything on the receipt, shop's name, timestamp, all the items that they purchase. Well, yeah, and even if they're not using your payment system. Exactly. You're seeing that's exactly, everything. That's right. So regardless of they paying with cash, credit card, we got the data. That was a key. You guys weren't the only company in this market, right? Our business model was that... Uh, we sell the deal, we take 20% of the deal. So it's a coupon model. Yes, Yeah. exactly, yeah. And also, you know, we, we took the split of the payment, but that wasn't big enough. The people thought that, oh, that's a good business, and they came into the game, right? They started offering for free. So now I had to go down to zero in order to fight back, because it's all about the market share. Right, right. right? And so were the, were the new entrants, were they, were they better funded? I mean, they have to be better funded if they can offer it for free. Initially, they were at the same size. So initially, we got 100K USD, and then we, uh, we, uh, we got 1.5 million USD. I think in terms of funding, we are at the same size of um, theirs. But it was difficult because uh, you know, they provide 
service for free and they didn't care about the business model because their business model was they get enough merchants so that they can sell the merchant to some big Chinese company. Ready oh, the China buy. company would acquire them. That's right. I got you. Right. Okay. So the, those, you know, our competitor, they didn't care about the business model. They didn't have a business model. All they needed to do is to set up the merchant so that they can sell it back, sell it to Chinese company. How do you fight against that? Well, by raising more, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So we, we wanted to raise more money. So I was talking to a Japanese investor. And this is 2016? That was, uh, yeah, 2016. Okay. We started the conversation back in 20, 2016, yes. Well, that's a good time to be raising money. Yeah, 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 that's right. Especially from Japan. That was easier to raise money from Japan. So although you were operating in, in Malaysia, your financing was all from Japan? The first round, we got it from Japan. Second round, we got it from Germany. And the third round, I was talking to Singapore, Japan, US, but we, we decided to go with Japan investor. But then they wanted to buy us 100%. They thought that this technology could be better applied to Japanese market. Intercepting the print stream technology? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, right, so like there's Rakuten Pay, there's Origami, there's so many players now. But back then, they weren't doing what we were doing. I think that the key was that we were able to get the POS data or the print data. Usually, right, if you go to a coffee shop, you get a stamp card. Once you collect five stamps, you get a free coffee. The money is coming from the coffee shop. But you know, they're operating with a very low margin, right? So they don't really have the money to do that, right? Mm -hmm. We couldn't go after those little coffee shop. But we know that, okay, we can actually those uh, beverage company, let's say a beer company, we wanted to sign up those guys so that no matter which shop you go, as long as you have Kirin or Asahi, you get a stamp. And were the Japanese investors supportive of that or they just wanted... Yeah. They, they like that. They like that idea. They like that idea and they were going to allocate 100 million, you know, get a market share in, in Shibuya. What? I can see why companies like Kiri Narasahi want to do that because it moves the loyalty points from the shop to the brand. Yeah. yeah. And that's a really powerful thing for them to do. Yeah. Yeah. I thought so. I think so. So did they end up investing or buying? They ended up buying. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So they bought our company. But after that, the executive decided that maybe they shouldn't invest after they bought us. That, that's sort of the wrong time to be making that decision. <laughs> yeah, right. That's got to be disappointing. I've had previous companies that were acquired, but in, in those cases, the acquiring company was excited about the technology. They, they kept selling it. They kept developing it. That's good. That's good. That's what I wanted to do. But that, that's got to be incredibly disappointing just to, just to say, no, we've decided against it. Yeah. How soon afterwards did they? They're six months after. Huh. But before that, we've been talking, you know, back and forth. Was it a change of management? Was it? Change of management. Yeah, change of management. Yeah, that can happen. So, well, let's talk about Japan in general. Sure. So I, I think it's interesting that you're Japanese, but you've ended up doing business and starting companies just about everywhere except for Japan. <laughs> right, right, yes. 
do you think it's a good idea for Japanese who speak English and have technical or business skills to go to Singapore or go to Southeast Asia to start a startup rather than doing something in Japan? It really depends on you know, what type of business you're doing. But in general, I would like to encourage people to go out because you can always come back, right? So what type of businesses would, would startup founders be best to go to Singapore, go to Malaysia to start? And what would be best if they start in Japan? Ah, that's a difficult one. That's difficult because if I knew the answer, I'll be, be a millionaire now. <laughs> but I'll say if you want to do a consumer business, I think Southeast Asia or elsewhere, I mean, you have to go global. Yeah. And you can do that in Southeast Asia or US or Japan, anywhere, right? But then by living in Southeast Asia, you get a lot more inputs, more feedback from the market. And you are able to build a global company. You know, you are able to hire people from US, Europe, Asia, so. Well, and you still have access to Japanese financing. You could do that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Japanese VCs are very active in Southeast Asia. Yes, yeah, es- especially now, especially now. But if you want to do a 2B business, right? I think Japan, Tokyo, I think is the best place in the world. Because think about, think about the wealth in this Niju Sanku, right? Yeah, in I agree. Region, 20... All of my startups have been some form of B2B yeah. software, enterprise software. Yeah. And Tokyo is an amazing place to run a company like yeah. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. All the big players are in Japan. It was in like 30 minutes you can reach anywhere. Well, listen, Hajime, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. All right. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, the legal system, anything at all to make things better for startups in Japan, what would you change? I will say education. Education? Right. Education is the answer to everything, right? No one is born with a fixed or gross mindset. Our beliefs are shaped by messages we receive from our environment. When I say environment, you know, all the interaction with the parents, teachers, friends, and everyone around us, not just the classroom. So I think education is a key to everything. What would you change about it, though? I would like so if I had the magic wand, right? I would like to change people's mindset to be more gross-minded, more positive about the futures because you could change the future. So it would be to make people more optimistic about yes. the future. Yeah. Yes. But yes. I think so. Japanese people are not optimistic by nature, I th- I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I find even when people feel optimistic, right. they don't necessarily express it. Right, right, yeah. So you but think that, that that's something that could be fixed in the educational system? I think so. But because you mentioned that they don't really express it, yeah. but that's because of the social pressure. Maybe you want to express it, maybe the receiving side, like, you know, elder person might not like it, so you're not, you're not really allowed to express it, right? right? So that's why I need to change it at all level. Right, the kids to young people to like elder people. But actually, let me step back a little bit because I don't want to change everyone's mindset because I think Japan is really good already. So Japanese people are very 
they have a dignity, they are responsible, which is really good side of Japan, right? But then I want to make it a little bit more optimistic. So I'll say I'd like to use the magic wand to change 20% of the population. <laughs> okay. 20% of the population. Because we just need a little tweak, you know, not changing everybody's, just a little bit. I, I agree completely. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that people misunderstand about innovation,、mm-hmm. particularly with my, like my big corporate clients. They're like, well, we need to change the culture of our company. It's like, no, 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 you really don't. You, you just need 5% or、yeah. 10% people that want to do some innovative stuff and you can connect them with each other. Right, right. And they'll go out and be innovative. And the other like 80%, like you were saying, can just keep society going. Yes. Keep the electricity flowing. That's and, right. And teach children. And, yeah. 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 So, yeah, so I wouldn't change you know, everyone. So that seems like the right balance, like 20% <laughs> optimistic innovation and、yeah. 80% stability and, and、yeah. you know, pragmatic seriousness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always 20-80, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Pareto principle, it, it keeps coming back to that. Yeah, yeah. We don't need too many crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> But we need a few. Yeah. Do you think that's changing? I, I, I think it's changing. Yeah, I think, I, changing. I think so too. Yeah. So Japan is. Always had this incredibly creative group of people. Yeah. Until recently, they're always kind of like outside. Suppressed, yeah. Yeah. You know, they had their own little cliques and they weren't considered like normal. Yeah. But I, I think in the last 10, 15 years, it's becoming more acceptable to be unique. Yes. Which is good. Which is really good. I think it's really good. It's yeah. Really good. Yeah. All right, excellent. All right, but thanks so much for sitting down with me. I really enjoyed it. All right, thank you. Thanks, Tim. And we're back. So you see, in Japan, not all PR is good PR. A rumor can kill a product or a whole company so easily in Japan. And it can happen even when most people know the rumor to be false. The general attitude is why risk it? Image is everything. Opinion is reality. That can certainly make disruptive innovation more difficult, and it can make doing things a new way more difficult as well. But that seems to be changing. Hajime and I both talked about how Japan is becoming more accepting of people with different ideas or who make different choices in life. Both in business, in the arts, or in just the way you want to live your life. And that's great. That's necessary for innovation to flourish. Public perception is still very real here, however. And if you are perceived as being deceptive or working against the interests of society as a whole, then you probably won't do well here. In fact, During their market entry, Uber seemed to be genuinely confused as to why they were being shut down for violating the law. N- not confused over which laws they were violating, mind you, but why they were being shut down because of the violations. Even Japanese VCs, especially corporate VCs, are very image conscious and are careful about the public perception of their portfolio companies. And you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. 
even if occasionally a good startup does slip through the cracks because of it. But Hajime is doing all right. In fact, although we didn't have time to cover it in the interview, over a six-month period in 2018, he founded, built, and sold Augmented Analytics, an artificial intelligence and virtual reality startup. So we'll be keeping an eye on Hajime moving forward. If you want to talk more about startups or about people spreading rumors behind your back, Hajime and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 132 and leave a comment and let us know what you think. And also, feel free to follow Disrupting Japan on Twitter, Facebook, or even join our LinkedIn group. If you want to ask a question there, I guarantee you I'll respond. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.